Welcome to the Here and Now podcast. This is the first podcast episode to introduce a concept from philosophy, and it's a fairly dark one at that. It may elicit some strong views from some of you, but there's an important caveat which applies to this, and indeed all forms of thought which challenge our long-held views, and that is we need to listen and absorb the ideas objectively, evaluate them on their own merits, and then make an informed decision about what aspects you do or do not agree with. Just because something is confronting or doesn't sound right doesn't mean that it's not right. And further to that, if something is hard to hear, then it might just be because it's striking a nerve that's close to the truth. Whatever your views are on the subject matter presented today, I hope it helps you to understand what philosophy is about. It's being able to take a step back and reflect on what makes sense from a purely logical perspective and appraise life not as something messy and emotional in which we're at the centre of our universe, but as one element of the vast reality that we inhabit with all other matter, with all of time, both before this moment and in the ones yet to come. Clearly to do so is impossible. To have such power would be to have the all-knowing power of God. But we can get one step closer by at least acknowledging that philosophical thought should as much as is possible attempt to remove our individual perspective from the equation and focus on pure rational thought. So let's begin. The topic of the podcast is antinatalism. This is an unusual philosophical position which states that it is better not to bring life into the world as life is full of so much suffering and only ends in death. It goes one step further to suggest that not only is it wrong to bring life into the world, but it's immoral. I'll say that again for you. Antinatalism states it is immoral to bring life into the world as it is to condemn that life to suffering which will only end in death. Let that sink in. Could there be a more cynical position? How can such an argument even be made when it seems that the most fundamental purpose of being alive is to procreate? Evolution, Darwinism, everything that we see around us came about because of the will to survive and to breed. So how could something which is so obviously inherent to reality be immoral? The argument can be broken down in a few ways, and it may surprise you to learn that it is actually not new. In fact, it goes right back to the earliest teachings of the Buddha around 400 BC. I've talked about noble truths in a previous episode, but I'll go a little deeper with the concept from Buddhist teaching. The Buddha states, Oblivious to the suffering to which life is subject, man begets children, and is thus the cause of old age and death. If he would only realize what suffering he would add to by his act, he would desist from the procreation of children and so stop the operation of old age and death. So who knew that the Buddha was such a miserable bastard? The first noble truth is suffering, or dukkha, and it describes how suffering comes in many forms. There's three obvious kinds which correspond to the first three sights the Buddha saw on his first journey outside of his palace. They were old age, sickness, and death. But according to the Buddha, the problem of suffering goes much deeper. It's really that life is not ideal. It frequently fails to live up to our expectations. As human beings, we are constantly subject to desires and cravings. But even when we're able to satisfy these desires, that satisfaction is temporary. And pleasure does not last, or if it does, it becomes monotonous. Even when we're not suffering from outward causes of illness or bereavement, we're unfulfilled and unsatisfied. This is the noble truth of suffering. Now, people may think this sounds pessimistic, but Buddhists, they don't find it pessimistic. They just find it realistic. This is part of the reality of life. And 
um, as you go further into the other noble truths of uh, Buddhism, describes how we can try and transcend suffering and eventually moving to the state of nirvana. But that's a conversation for a later episode. So there's this notion that when we bring life into the world, and let's keep this simple by thinking just about humans for now, that we're making a decision on behalf of that unborn child. Did our parents ask us if we would like to live? Of course not. We were never given a choice. We just arrive and make the best of it with what we have. Now, it's easy to say how great life is for me, sitting in my ivory tower with the freedom to do almost anything I want. But is that true of most people? Or most people throughout all of history? For many, if not all by historical standards, life was one long trudge through suffering and misery. Now, it could be argued that, yes, there has been a lot of suffering, but what could be more joyful than holding a newborn baby in one's arms? I agree, it's definitely the happiest moment of my life looking into the eyes of my newborn children as they emerge into the world. But they certainly weren't particularly happy in that moment. In fact, both of them just about died trying to get here. So the joy was really all mine. And even then, it was bloody stressful. My wife, well, she was overcome with joy and endorphins as well, but she'd been through hell to get to that point. And it's really only because her brain had evolved over thousands of years that uh, she should feel this uh, sense to protect and nourish a newborn, lest they die. So it's certainly not the case for many other species as well, in which infanticide is common. And... Uh, Perhaps look up filial cannibalism. Okay, maybe don't look it up, but it's not a uh, natural given that bringing life into the world brings joy to the parents alone. So when I take joy from the birth of my children, uh, that was really a selfish endeavor for me. And can that in and of itself be justification for subjecting my children to a life of pain and suffering? So the whole notion of antinatalism was first made known to me by Sam Harris in his uh, Waking Up podcast, and I'll link to that in the show notes. And he interviewed a gentleman by the name of David Benatar, and he's a philosopher from South Africa, and he's written a book about this. Uh, that's also in the show notes. Now, it's fair to say that Sam wasn't a big fan of his ideas, and although from a logical standpoint, they can be quite compelling. So the notion of antinatalism is very dark when you uh, say it as such. But when approached from this logical perspective, as Benatar does, from a philosophical point of view, it's actually worth considering. So I'd like to go into that argument and uh, discuss what Benatar uh, has presented. And uh, let's see if we can break it down a bit. So here's his argument in a nutshell. Benatar says pain is bad. He says that pleasure is good. The absence of pain is good. And the absence of pleasure is not bad unless someone is deprived of that pleasure. I'll say it again. There's four propositions. The first, pain is bad. The second, pleasure is good. The third, the absence of pain is good. And the fourth, the absence of pleasure is not bad unless somebody is deprived of that pleasure. Now, it sounds relatively simple, but let's unpack it. And forgive me, David, as I'm about to butcher what is really quite an eloquent argument. So proposition one, pain is bad. No one's going to argue, except perhaps a minority of sadomasochists. And let's assume that even they have a limit to what level of pain is enjoyable. So for the purpose of this argument, we can equate pain with suffering. That pain could be hunger, could be tiredness, it could be a sore neck after sleeping funny, it could be experiencing a breakup or could be the death of a loved one. Pain and suffering covers a wide spectrum and we all experience varying degrees of it throughout our lives. So setting aside the notion about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger in our personal growth and development we get from pain, let's agree that pain is inherently bad. And if we had a choice, we would rather not have pain at all. 
So the next proposition is that pleasure is good. Is there a scenario in which pleasure is not good? Again, there are fringe cases when such uh, is when pleasure is derived from something which causes pain to others. So let's isolate this definition of pleasure to mean any pleasure which does not cause pain to anyone or anything. So laughing at a joke that's not at someone's expense, shall we say, or the first sip of uh, a good coffee in the morning, snuggling into clean sheets, listening to your favourite song, the sound of your partner's voice when you just need to hear it. Let's say that's a spectrum of things which we can all unilaterally define and agree are pleasurable. And they are all good in the eyes of the universe. There's no harm coming to anybody. These are just pure good things. So Proposition 3 says that the absence of pain is good. Can we conceive of any scenario in which pain is good? And again, pipe down the sadomasochists. We've already determined that pain is bad. So the absence of pain must be good. We can therefore place a positive value on the absence of pain. So now we get to the final proposition. This one's a little more complicated. The final pr proposition states that the absence of pleasure is not bad unless someone is deprived of it. So let's think about that. If it is good to not experience pain, then surely it must be bad not to experience pleasure. This argument states that we can't place a positive value on the absence of pleasure, but we can on the absence of pain. And the reason for that is there is a natural uh, asymmetry. So that is to say that pain has more value than pleasure. And we can think of it this way. If you are comfortably sitting in a chair, you're not in pain, you're quite content, you're not overly happy, but you're certainly not in pain, you're just neutral. Would you say that is a bad place to be? Probably not. Now, if I said, what if you were really uncomfortable right now? The chair is hard, your back is aching, you're hungry. Then you would agree that that is not a good situation. But you are not experiencing those things, so that must be good. So that's proposition three. Now, what if someone in the other room was about to give you something you know you'd really enjoy? It could be a favorite chocolate or a drink, perhaps. But you aren't aware of this, and then your friend is called away. They never give you the thing that you would have really enjoyed. You're still sitting there quite comfortably, blissfully unaware that you could have been happier. Now, do you feel bad because you didn't get the chocolate or the drink that you would have liked? No, of course you don't, because you didn't know anything about it. So that's proposition four. There's not a negative value that can be assigned to a lack of a good. So let's substitute that example for life. Life is painful and full of suffering, and that is bad. Life will have moments of joy and happiness, but they won't outweigh the level of suffering. And that's an important point about asymmetry, which we'll come back to shortly. So if you were never alive, you'd never experience pain and suffering. But you'd also never experience joy and happiness. But you wouldn't know that you were going to miss out on all of that happiness. But you definitely wouldn't have to experience any of the pain and suffering. So the net result argues that an absence of life is indeed the only way to avoid any pain and suffering. Still with me? I'm going to delve a bit deeper into Benatar's argument and the asymmetry of pain and happiness as it's really the central concept that it all hinges on. And this is something that Sam Harris really struggled with, and I guess I do too. We need to introduce morality, the notion of what is right and wrong. Is there some universal position that says what should or should not be? Is it wrong to murder or to lie? Is it right to be kind and to share? Where are these immutable laws written? The animal kingdom certainly doesn't obey them in the same ways we do. But we're a more evolved species, so I guess that's what sets us apart. We have the ability to determine our own morality on the basis of thought and not only our instincts and primal urges. So assuming you agree that there is a moral basis for what is right and wrong, then we can go further into the argument. 
Benatar says we have a moral obligation not to create unhappy people, but we have no moral obligation to create happy people. This is because the absence of unhappiness is good, whether they exist or not. But the absence of happiness is not bad in either case, as if they don't exist, there is nothing lost by them not experiencing happiness, and if they do exist, then no happiness is not bad, only unhappiness. He also says that we may feel bad for people who come into existence and suffer, but we have no such feelings about all the people who didn't come into existence in a place where there have been happy experiences. For instance, we may see an ill person and feel bad for their suffering, but we wouldn't see happy people and feel bad for all the people that don't exist to also experience that happiness. Now, you may be thinking of an argument against Benatar that some people who would like to have children but can't for some reason, probably medical, are being deprived of happiness by not having the child. And this is the exact exception of Proposition 4. There is someone who is deprived of happiness. Does that couple feel happy that at least the child that they will never be able to have won't suffer? Well, that sounds doubtful. But the logic of the proposition is that there are those who don't want to have children and they don't experience unhappiness from that choice. Quite the opposite. So for those that do and can't, they experience unhappiness, but that is part of the pain of their life. But the unborn child that they couldn't have will not experience anything. And therefore, that is a good which outweighs the suffering of those who are alive to suffer from the absence of that good. It gets a bit complicated. Another similar example is the tragedy of someone who dies before they were able to have children, but had they not died, they would probably have had them. So let's say a young soldier who dies in combat and leaves behind a widow, or the victim of a drunk driver, or the victim of a plane crash. Generations upon generations of people don't exist because their parents were never able to have them. Now we can't apply value to a lack of happiness from the subsequent generations, but we can to those left behind who were not able to have the children that they otherwise would have. So that level of suffering really only extends to that which was inflicted upon those who were alive to experiencing it. So the absence of life in this case meant more suffering, and that is bad, but it only extends as far as the generation to which it applies. Benatar doesn't just end with this argument, however. He puts a guilt trip on all of us breeders by highlighting just how much suffering we are responsible for. He cites the following statistics. In the first 88 years of the 20th century, 170 million and possibly as many as 360 million people were shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed, worked to death, buried alive, drowned, hanged, bombed, or killed in any of the other myriad ways governments have inflicted death on unarmed, helpless civilians and foreigners. Every year, about 40 million children are maltreated, and it's estimated that approximately 800,000 people commit suicide every year. That's a lot of suffering. And that's just the beginning. What about the animals? How many millions of other creatures and animals suffer and die as a result of human existence year after year? Look at what we're doing to the planet. Benatar describes this as the misanthropic argument, and it's separate from his logical argument we discussed earlier, but it states pretty much what we all know, that humans are an innately destructive species responsible for the death and suffering of billions of other human and non-human animals. If that level of destruction was being caused by another species, would we let it continue to breed? So there's this disturbingly obvious conclusion to all of this, at least if you follow Benatar's argument. And that's it's probably for the best, certainly for the universe, if we would all go extinct. Bugger. Now, if you've listened to all of this, you're probably feeling unsettled, like something doesn't add up. We're not placing enough value on human life or the joys of life and how good life really is. 
We're a precious snowflake. We're lucky to be alive and we must cherish every moment, etc., etc. Well, yes, that's all true. But there's an important distinction, and that is morality extends both before and into life. So once life arrives, we must do everything we can to minimize suffering and maximize happiness. And one way we do that is through our own psychology. We've evolved to see the world in certain ways, to downplay our suffering. We view life from a rose-tinted perspective. It's a survival mechanism. Have you ever watched a historical drama or a documentary and wondered how people lived in the Middle Ages or, say, ancient Egypt as slaves? They're always at war. They seem to be struggling for every little thing. I mean, those people had it rough. But on the whole, did they look at how terrible their lives were? Well, perhaps the slaves probably did. But for the most part, they couldn't judge the quality of their lives, certainly not uh, relative to ours or anyone else's. Just as we can't compare ours to some future version of humanity in which suffering is less for many other reasons. So we have an inbuilt optimism bias that helps us to believe that things aren't that bad and that they'll get better. It's a form of self-protection, a Pollyanna mechanism to stop us from committing suicide with the realization that life is actually pretty shitty. And instead, we should all have babies because it's actually really great. Now, unfortunately, many do succumb to such thoughts. And as such, when life exists, we must do everything we can to minimize suffering. Every loss is a tragedy. But for most of us, the optimism bias is essentially how we tend to be too optimistic for our own good. We overestimate the likelihood that good things will happen to us, but underestimate the probability that negative events will impact our lives. We assume events like divorce, job loss, illness and death happen to other people. It's also one of the reasons that we drink and smoke and take risks, because we think it'll never happen to us. It'll happen to them, but not me, because I'm special. And we also tend not to look at our lot objectively. We say there's always someone worse off than me. We don't say, look how shit this aspect of my life is. We say, look how awesome my life is compared to those poor bastards. And probably most significantly, we have an enormous ability to adapt and to cope. We can get used to anything, and we often do. Resilience is a quality which has allowed the human race to survive harsh conditions and flourish, albeit at the expense of many other things in the natural world. But do those mechanisms which help to protect and insulate us from the inevitable suffering of life outweigh the immorality that Benatar suggests comes from bringing life into the world? Well, I'll let you ponder on that and decide for yourself, but for me, it certainly makes me think about what life really means and the value of my family and how serious is the responsibility of having children, knowing how much they will have to contend with. It is therefore not such an outrageous question to ask, do I really want to bring life into this world? And why am I doing it? Because they will have no say in the matter, and it's going to be tough. So when I'm confronted with the decision, perhaps the most important decision anyone can ever make, the decision to bring life into the world, am I making it for myself, or am I making it for the unborn life who has no say in the matter? So the next time your child screams at you, Dad, I wish I'd never been born, take a moment to think about it. Because perhaps they're right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes. And be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.